Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign, the podcast where two DMs discuss campaigns of old and try to glean some advice, some tips, some musings on the process of being a dungeon master. I am Tom Lando, your host, and with me as always is my co-host... McGill, hello. McGill is not me. Just an excuse to get my catchphrase in there. Nice and early. It is the... Ooh, the 5th of June. Had one of those moments... 2020. Yeah, 2020. A year that will live in infamy. Yeah. Uh, man. It's been a bit much. Uh, Yeah, it's it's been a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Um... So, on this day, it is session 16 by my count, making it episode episode 17. Almost got that the wrong way around. But it's only chapter slash session 5 of my campaign, so we're going to get really confusing. Yeah, that's true. We're we're what, doing What number is it, Tom? Multiple is it streams. 13? Is it what or what was it? 16, 17, 5. Where are we? Yeah. And uh I've got like a thunderstorm going on here, but it shouldn't be coming through. Uh just to give you some scene setting behind the scenes. Um, Feel free to go to one of those websites like a, a Silent Murmur and just turn on one of those like rainy soundscapes. You can play it in the background as you listen. And so there's like YouTube channels where they just do like, you know, here's 10 hours of this ambient sound. But like, you know what the craziest ones are is like you can get like 10 hours of just like a deep fryer sizzling. And like one time, <laughs> one time I just like on a really hot day, I like sat in the with the sun streaming through my window and just sat in the sun and played that sizzling thing and i was like i am the fries i'm getting (laughs) fried and i fell asleep it's pretty great um all those things are good for falling asleep did you get a bad sunburn i i think i think i was okay i don't know i have like an interesting situation with my room where like the windows are a very specific angle. Well, first of all, my blinds are broken, so they can't go down anymore. So that's a problem. And then you know what's you know what's even more rare than uh, than gold or silver? It's blinds that work. Yeah, I guess so. So, anyways, so the blinds are ineffective, and the windows are at an angle. I mean, it's kind of cool because I look kind of towards like the airport and i can see planes coming and going but then also there's like a time in the middle of the day right around 11 for most of the sunny season um in which like the sun becomes a death laser that passes through my room um but it only lasts a certain amount of time so i think i had set myself up for a specific kind of uh, self-frying sesh that time. That's, that's a wild tangent we got on. Um, well, I was actually going to bring it back because uh, there are also YouTube videos out there that are like 10 hours of uh, the Starship Enterprise engine yeah, room. Yeah, that's another good one. Ambient noise. 
and I totally use those for Minds of Metal and Wheels Parts 1 and 2. Anytime players are on the lantern, you just turn on some of that ambient spaceship noise. So, my session 16 is called Operation Timber Requiem. Uh, going back to some, you know, words that were in track names on the album uh, Mourner by... Kana and uh, you got a chapter yourself Mr. Chapter 5 that's right chapter 5 of mine is titled Thin Air admittedly this is a much shorter chapter because it was a real uh, exposition dump minimal encounters but a lot of plot development I mean, your game has had a, had a lot of mystery lately so I think they're a bit due for an exposition dump Exactly. Who's behind this? Do you want to start it off, or shall I? What do you think? Uh, I could jump into it. Um, Go for it. Okay, Operation Timber Requiem. If you recall, the players had just chased the Nightside Eclipse uh, out of hell itself from the eighth layer of Kenya, where they were working for Mephistopheles, to root out these uh, Nightside Eclipse intruders, these cultists and undead, led by an undead crusader by the name of Mourner and his uh, magical advisor from days long past, now a hag known as Carmen the Immortal. So Carmen and uh, Mourner got away. They managed to flee through a portal uh, out of hell while the players were doing battle with their lieutenant, Constantine the Blind. And after the players fought their way through... Man, big lightning bolt. Oh, boy, that's uh, cool. Uh, after the <laughs> after players... This is neat. We've got, like, interactivity here. Listeners at home, while you listen to this episode, you put on the rain noise, get yourself a strobe light, and occasionally, like, spray yourself in the face with a mister... I don't have the windows open. Um, but you could. Too hot for that. I got a fan. It's all fake. Um, weather is fake. It's all fake. Uh, right, so they fought Constantine the Blind. They fought their way through the Insomnium Mine in Kenya, which they got to the portal, and they were like, we're not waiting. We're going right through this portal. We're chasing them to wherever they went. And, uh, I mean, I guess they're lucky that they didn't just immediately go through to, like, a Nightside Eclipse base or something. Although, I'm sure they went in with a level of confidence that suggests, like, they were ready for whatever. Um, whatever the case, they got through and found themselves back in Drail, uh, in sort of an unfamiliar forest area. And that is where we left off. And uh, the forest turned out to be, if you look at the Drail map on our uh, WordPress, comparingcampaign.wordpress, uh, you, you can see in the north, sort of towards the channel that, connect, that separates the north and south parts of the continent, <clears throat> you'll see uh, Settler's Green. It's just sort of like the main forest area under the city of Austin. And that is where the players had been uh, dropped off. Well, found themselves 
when they went through the portal anyway. And um, pretty shortly after, I mean, obviously they were trying to get a bead on these undead that they were pursuing, trying to catch up with them, uh, track them down. If you look at Settlers Green, so it's right beneath the city of Austin. And so part of it became like uh, the urgency of like, okay, they were initially planning to invade the north via that shipyard that they were constructing sort of near the border. Um, and now they're like, we're pretty close to one of the northern capitals. Things could be moving that way like rapidly so they set about trying to chase down these undead through the forest um generally in the direction of the human city of austin which they had defended once before although undercover and uh, this time they were kind of in a hurry and might not have that advantage but on the way there they ran into a character who once again became a major npc and continues to be a major npc in drail uh, to this day in the campaign that I'm running this is a character by the name of Morgar uh, which is actually I know is sort of like already a fantasy thing it's like a sea monster kind of thing um, if you play the game Endless Legend they added a Morgar race um, but Morgar in this case is just the name of an orc who went on to join the MPOC uh, because of the events of this session and uh, becomes an NPC further down the line. Uh, I mean, Elray is an NPC. I don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, also, the it's another nod to like a track title from uh, Mourner by Kana, the, uh, the, the album that I'm taking stuff for for this arc. So they ran into Morgar, who is like, um, basically, I mean, he's definitely, he's an orc who is in a spot he is not supposed to be. I believe that his backstory was that he was like a, sort of like a lieutenant or like a minor leader of a squad back when the orcs were attacking the north when the Empok initially defended Austin. Um, in that case... It was because the orc army was out of control because, if you'll recall, their leader was replaced by a doppelganger. Um, so Morgar was sort of like one of the leftovers of like these orcs who had managed to like continue surviving in the north, effectively in, in enemy territory. And uh, now he was just happening to run into Empok's finest, our heroes. But more importantly, before he ran into them, he ran into a new monster that I had introduced um, in a tribute to a band that I like. Uh, you know the band Cannibal Corpse? Oh, yeah, of course I do. Do you know the band Cannabis Corpse? <laughs> no, but I think I'd probably like them more. Yeah, they're, they're actually... I generally prefer cannabis to the taste of human flesh. Well, and it's funny because... <laughs> This, like, joke... <laughs> it sounds like a joke band. Like, it sounds like it's just going to be a parody of Cannibal Corpse. But then, like, they're such a legitimately good death metal band in their own right that, like, I have seen recent years where, like, 
in contention for best metal, like best death metal album of the year, you will have Cannibal Corpse competing with Cannabis Corpse uh, in a sort of weird twist of fate. Um, <laughs> because it turns out you can make great death metal and just make it all about weed. Uh, killer weed. It reminds um, me of the, the story that I don't know if it's true, but the band Better Than Ezra came up with their name at a battle of the bands when they were about to go on and they didn't have a name but the band playing after them was called ezra so they just called themselves better than ezra there you go um you know cannabis corpse they tell stories of uh you know weed monsters um it kind of texas chainsaw massacre hicks but then they uh like turn you into weed for some reason um there's a song I. This sounds like a, a module that Goblin Inc. Press would put out. There's there's a track that I love called the Weed List Ones. That's just about like the ghouls that steal your weed when you're not looking. Um, Shit, I think I've met a few of those. Well, I think in the song it's like you don't meet, you don't ever see them. It's like, uh something while you, you turn around and your stash is gone that old pizza distracted you let your guard down now you'll never get your weed back um you know it's classic uh anyways i like this band so much and i was so into them at the time that i created the cannabis corpse monster based on the band and you know certain songs that they had made so basically what i created was um it's it's like you know if you have sort of hybrid monsters like you think of like uh the ogre zombie is a monster that is undead and also a giant um you can name a bunch of these different types of like sort of crossovers in this case you have sort of like a plant elemental like a um, shambling mound mixed with an undead so there's basically like an undead like a skeleton or something at the core of it and it's been overgrown with this like a uh, vicious um, magical cannabis and uh, is now like sort of like an undead shambling mound monster um, very resistant well it has a weird interaction with the spell Blight, which is something that's supposed to kill plants real good, but uh, it does necrotic damage. So it's like, oh man, it's the plant monster that doesn't get affected by Blight. Um, but also, you know, it has certain distinctive features like um, you can always sort of smell if there's a cannabis corpse around. It gives a very distinct resiny scent uh skunky smell <laughs> yeah and also like i developed this over time i've had cannabis corpses in my campaigns long enough now that based on different artwork for different cannabis corpse albums i have created different sort of levels of the cannabis corpse um so i don't have them on hand at the moment but i know off the top of my head like there's one that entangles you that's the bud constrictor uh, there's the mass, the master <laughs> Keef is like a, a, a leader unit. Um, ah, the, the minotaur skeleton of the cannabis corpse creature type. Uh, potzillas are like big, uh, reptilian, uh, like 
cannabis corpse monsters those are probably like the most shambling mound like um uh pot shots are the lowest ones they just like shoot seeds at you basically um i bet i can name the mortal enemy monster of the cannabis corpse i mean is it a fire elemental no it's a stoned golem i mean yeah stoner golem all of these things um all this to say the players had just come out of a portal from hell they were tracking through the forest and suddenly they get this like really distinct like cannabis smell it's overpowering resiny scent and then they find this orc uh i don't know if he was alone or if he had a couple of orcs with him um, but whatever the case, they aided Morgar in fighting the first ever encountered cannabis corpses. Um, and uh, so it was like a double a double introduction. As I, I got to introduce some new monsters, and then I also got to dr- introduce a new NPC who they did, um, you know, after the fight, they made friends with him. He, like, basically said, like, who do I have to thank for this rescue and they said like the empok and they said like the empok you know doesn't discriminate against orcs or goblins or anything you should come work for us and uh so he went on his way and eventually that's what happened um in the meantime after that little encounter they used what information they got from Morguar follow up on uh the undead who they were tracking and of course the uh, undead force was moving towards the human capital of Austin with haste. So the players had to travel north to Austin to try and head off the undead threat. So yeah, that's that was my session 16. Cool, man. So this was the first appearance of the Cannabis Corpse, and these guys have appeared like as ongoing creatures in your setting? Yes fun they've been developed and refined uh players have interacted with nightside eclipse characters who um were involved in the cannabis corpse sort of project um yeah it all keeps going (laughs) and so have has a player ever like killed a cannabis corpse monster and lit it on fire and smoked it I think it's definitely something that happened kind of early on, but then, like, tests were... I think the MPOC, after initially encountering them, started doing, like, tests on the cannabis that was found from it and stuff, and they found, like, some kind of, like, negative uh, side effect that everybody was like, okay, never mind, Let's, let's stop smoking this stuff. Yeah, I can only I can imagine it would only give you negative modifiers. I mean, I like your character is really happy, but you have a minus two to dexterity, a minus two to wisdom, etc., etc. I think the real thing is that it hasn't quite been revealed yet, but the lowest class of the Nightside Eclipse are kind of they're almost not even zombies. They're just kind of um they're, they're just drones. They're just, like, humans that are, like, pale and lifeless, and they just kind of shift around, and they're drones. Uh, if I were to use a 
point of comparison, it would be in the game Brutal Legend, the, uh, I think it's the Gravediggers? It's like the lowest level unit for the Drowning Doom faction is like, basically they're just like emo kids. They're just like guys that shuffle around. They have shovels. They hit stuff with their shovels. They wear just black and white. And they're like, oh, hey, quit it. Take that. You suck. Um, <laughs> so I think the real concern was that like, the longer you'd smoke this, the more drone-like you would become. And so people were like, okay, let's... I don't want to be no dumb drone. Let's let's stay away from this stuff. Is this the first time that Brutal Legend has been brought up on our show? I think it might be. Yeah, it might be. Uh... That's very surprising. You were, like, obsessed with it for a while, man. I remember coming to our early morning film lectures and you would come and go, are you ready for the legend that is brutal? Yeah. I mean, and, uh, it's funny if I haven't mentioned it, it's, it's funny also because like there's some pretty obvious points of reference between my campaign and that in terms of like creating a world based on metal. Um, yeah, I was very fond of that game. Although sadly it's like, there's a lot of stuff in that game that's just, like, there. It's You can't interact with it or anything, and it's just, like, man, wasted potential. But that's games, you know? Certainly double fine games. I did... This is a tangent, but... Like, comparison I would make is uh, Fallout 4, the glowing sea. It's, like, this big, hyped-up super place in the setting, and then there's, like like two quests there and like it's just everything's like the locations aren't dense at all so it's just open spaces with monsters and it's like man finish your game man if you're gonna <laughs> release dlc release a dlc to finish this part of the game because every time i get here i just want to stop playing anyway that's another thing uh do we have any more questions about my thing or should we jump over your thing it seems like yours was fairly straightforward. Um, so no other questions for me unless there's anything else that you want to add. I mean, I guess I would say Morgar. Uh, I don't know if I'd had any, like, real major orc NPCs yet. So, like, I was I was happy to bring in kind of like a, you know, just cool orc NPC to be friends with the characters. So... That's something and introduce say, some weed-based monsters. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the real takeaway from this one. But oh, oh, would you call them THNPC? Yeah, I guess, I guess you could do that. THNPC. THPCs. So you got a chapter name. That's right, Thin Air, and uh, this is. A pretty brisk little adventure. It's one of those... I, I've definitely talked about this type of adventure that I run sometimes where if I know it's going to be a short session and the primary point of it is just to deliver a whole lot of plot, then what I tend to do is I, you know, I write this short little adventure, make it a big exposition dump, and then I throw in one or two very simple encounters just to keep things lively and give the players a bit more, like, interactivity so they can roll some dice. Um, 
So at the end of Last Adventure, the players had finished their business in San Francisco. They had investigated the, the livestock murders and the murders of the people. They had discovered that uh, Nathan Garrett is not what he seems, some kind of shapeshifter. He is, of course, a werewolf. Um, and they had also captured a Martian uh, in, in that same adventure that they are going to interrogate. So they decide that they're going to, they're going to interrogate both Nathan Garrett and this Martian on the lantern on their way to their next destination. And I had it at the beginning of this adventure is they receive word from Melville that they are to report back to Scotland Yard headquarters because there's been a big development in London. So they set off immediately to fly back to London and uh, so this adventure takes place entirely in transit while they are on their way back. It's going to be a few days travel and it starts with Abendroth and Morwood uh, pouring over everything that they stole from the Farallon Island facility that they raided. They've got some notes. Um, so they are sitting in sort of the main lounge area of the lantern drinking tea and pouring over all these documents and here's what they find out they find out all the details about the alliance that has been formed between the germans and the different species of martians no specific names are given in the documents outside of the roster of workers and soldiers and scientists that were working at that facility uh, clearly all the information is being kept sort of compartmentalized but they're able to get the names of some of the people involved uh, the Colonel General Alexander August Wilhelm von Pape was the head ranking uh, officer at that facility. Uh, they discovered that the Martian that they've captured, his name is Destrin. Um, the notes also tell about how uh, using a form of fusion made possible by Martian technology, the Germans and the Martians are harnessing the energy supply contained within the phosphorescent crystals that they've been finding, a mineral which has not yet been named. Uh, and the, min the mineral's potential as a fuel source is massive. It takes a very small amount of it to power machines for very long periods of time. And the main thing that they discover is that they discover that all of these projects that are being started and tested around the world by the German-Martian alliance are designed to sort of work in concert with each other so that no single, no single project is like the linchpin uh, it's the kind of thing where, as an example, at the facility they raided, the blue beam that had been seen sort of shooting up into the sky, that was part of a weather control engine that was being developed. It was also the reason that there was a big storm that same night. Um, that weather control device can generate cloud cover and that is thick enough to contain stuff like, you know, paralytic gas or radio signals so it can be used in tandem with other weaponry that's being developed to basically entrap an enemy army reduce how well they can see like reduce their visibility but also limit their radio communications or perhaps paralyze all of them underneath that cloud for some reason i had imagined this like you were <laughs> framing this as like the clouds they were going to make the clouds and then send them somewhere so on the one hand, I was like, okay, send a cloud of paralytic gas at an enemy city. Yeah, that's that's bad, villainous stuff. But then you were like, radio signals? And I'm like, they were sending radio signals in clouds? My god! 
<laughs> no, it's much more like a canopy. If it, hey, if you need me to pull out the Star Wars reference, uh, Phantom Menace, you know, the, the Gungan army, they have those shields where they shoot the beam up into the sky and it creates like a dome. Similar sort of idea, but using natural weather patterns and occurrences. Um, very sort of steampunky, you know? I, I wanted to do that sort of steampunk thing where like controlling the weather is the kind of kind of research that a steampunk scientist would be looking into. Now, is the idea that all of the projects are based in this weather control, or are they all different things? They are all different things, but they're designed to sort of complement each other, and basically I wanted it to, to be kind of decentralized. Uh, the, the bad guys have all learned the, from the last time. The this isn't going to be a case jigsaw. where you destroy the control ship and it takes out all the smaller ones. A tactical so jigsaw. The, I wanted to make it so that the players could like destroy this facility, but that is not. it's barely going to put a kink in the plans because other devices are being developed in other places around the world. We have other ways of taking your cities. Um, yeah, exactly. Also, There's always another way. I also wanted to say, because um, um, this is something that came up in a game where i was playing recently uh where we as a party uh gained access well, like we took from an enemy basically like a huge artillery piece and suddenly there was all this question of like oh what do we use this for was there a sense with the party of like we could use this technology for the good guys Yeah, really. Well, so they used uh, they used Quelm to interrogate him because Quelm can speak Martian, and uh, they they uncover very little additional details from him. But in going through his gear, they discover that he has this special kind of bracelet, and it's effectively like if this was a fantasy setting, this would just be a magic item. Uh, but I had it be like a haste bracelet. Where you wear it, it increases your speed. It increases sort of the the speed at which your your players can do things. Avondroth really loved this because it allowed him to speed up work on his inventions. Um, but it just it gave them all a bonus. You know, you wear it. I gave them like a plus one to dexterity, um, which is which is plenty in my opinion. Can really make a difference. Do you ever? Um, but uh, do you ever see do you, like you know in in fifth edition when you cast haste if you after it it goes down there's like a turn where you're like can't do nothing do you know that yeah yeah you break concentration man you could cast haste it has your action and then the next like in the next turn like a dragon could hit you and break your concentration, and then you'd be done for another turn. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, man. In this case, the limit on them was that they have limited power. So I had it be that it's basically a once per day effect, and I can't remember exactly how many, but it was like X number of rounds you can have it activated. So I made it so that like Abendroth would really have to decide, you know, do I want to use it in combat or do I want to save that that extra time per day to advance my research or my devices? Um, 
so as they're they're conducting this interrogation they discover you know this cool bracelet they're going through Destrin's gear and then suddenly the ship lurches and they're being attacked by another airship and uh so i had i had them all I believe I had them roll wisdom checks just to see if they could remember if they had seen this ship anywhere before, and they did. They recognized it from when they were in Deepwater Bay in Hong Kong. Uh, it's a triad ship, and it's coming after them, but they still don't know why. Uh, the metagame is, of course, that Lady Anna's ne'er-do-well cousin owes the triads his life, and is basically going to sell out Lady Anna to pay for to pay off his debt. Um, so I have a, a quick encounter, some aerial combat, uh, the lantern still doesn't have, uh, or actually the lantern does now have a gun, a forward gun mounted because of course Lady Anna could not be in possession of the ship and not have it mounted with a gun. Uh, so I did some aerial combat, they managed to shoot like the paper fan like wings it's got those it's got wings on it that are like the sails on a junk like a boat yeah i i gotta say so i so i've been thinking about this a lot and like this is really cool but like political jurisdiction in in this world is like fucking wild west eh like the german well it is the literal wild the, the west. germans are taking crystals out of uh California and the triads are flying gunships over man this is wacky yeah uh, don't think about oh, it too hard I, I also I... meant to ask something um, back at the interrogation which is at this point is there any sort of ambivalence with Quelm moral or otherwise like is there any sense that like Quelm might have martian interest that he's protecting at, just because he's the one doing the interrogating right because he's the guy who speaks martian right so there is some suspicion towards him but uh through various character moments it hasn't really come to fruition yet but through various character moments a romance was actually brewing between quell and morwood ah neat <laughs> so they had so they they were suspicious of him but there was always this sense that he was on their side. It helped that I introduced him in the first campaign as well. Sort of gave him instant party credit. But he wasn't, like, secretly serving any, like, high Martian interests. No, no. He's just, like, a cultural attaché. And, I mean, he is, like, as we keep saying, he's, like, you know, Kiff from Futurama. So he's just this very timid C-3PO-esque character. And, uh... I didn't write it so that he had any potential, like, ulterior motives. And the characters, the players never really suspected it, now that I think about it. I really could have easily made him a turncoat if I wanted. I'm not even thinking a turncoat so much as, like, having the ambivalence of, like, okay, well, like, the Germans have allied with these other Martians, and uh, Quelm is a representative of the High Martians, and maybe there are, like, dirty secrets in the history of the High Martians that Quelm is, like, trying to cover up while helping the players. I wouldn't say that they're... They, they really weren't suspicious of him, but later on in the campaign, they do talk about that with Quelm, just, like... 
the animosity that exists between the different races of Martians and things like that. But I never really, I never even really thought of having Quelln's allegiance be anywhere except with the party. Neat. Probably because I was still feeling guilty about everybody <laughs> being angry that I duped them. The long peck and cool paw. down after that peck and paw. Kate, Caitlin laughed from the other room as I said that just now. It still, all these years later, resonates. <laughs> long cool down on the on the peck and paw factor. Yep. And uh, while this aerial combat is going on, the new DMPC starts taking things into his own hands. And uh, oddly enough, I again, you had pointed out that Nathan Garrett, uh, I was sort of introducing him in a similar way uh, to Peckinpah, except he was coming out of the gate seeming untrustworthy. Well, uh, as the fight, the aerial combat is going on, Nathan Garrett escaped from the Brig of the Lantern and after they they so the they're fighting this triad airship they blast the the sort of paper fan like wings off of it and the like outer shell of it kind of splits in two to reveal like an escape pod and that thing just shoots off like a bullet faster than the the lantern can take chase um and as that fight is ending you know all the players turn around and they find themselves face to face with nathan garrett and he's got guns drawn on them he's got them hostage and he says you know he demands that they land as soon as they reach the mainland he demands all of his gear back and he's not going back in the brig uh the players then conduct like some lengthy diplomacy roles to try and talk him down and defuse the situation which succeeded because i didn't want garrett to become a total enemy but i also didn't want my players to know that um, I like that they're so they actually. Back his gear. I like that. I like that the threat of being held at gunpoint was enough to actually make them talk him down, rather than just like a, like bum rush him. Like I feel like in certain RPGs, guns just don't have enough effect to the point where what I would expect to happen is like Wrath McGrath just like tackles the guy <laughs> to like risking whatever gun wounds in the process i really can never totally predict what my players will do and i figured that they might just try to like subdue him i think part of the reason that this encounter went down the way it did is just because of how i was role-playing nathan garrett like i was role-playing him in such a way that I was trying to convey, you know, it's the typical, like, Wolfman thing. Like, he's not in control uh, entirely, and it's sort of a tragic thing. He doesn't want to hurt anybody, but he he might if he doesn't, you know, get his way. Um, I guess it came through in the way I played him, but for whatever reason, the players decided to talk him down instead of just, you know, blowing him away, which they really easily could have. Um... So they get Nathan Garrett on their side, they take out the triads, they've learned a whole bunch, and they finally arrive a couple days later in London. They land in front of Scotland Yard HQ. It, the Scotland Yard is packed with people, but Melville is nowhere in sight. The heroes ask an officer if he knows Melville's location, and the officer explains that Melville is at an important meeting in the House of Lords, and that they should proceed there to, to rendezvous with him. And as they made their way there, 
that's how I wrapped up the adventure on their way to the next plot point. Sort of a short and sweet one. I think both of ours were like pretty concise, but like yeah. Also, well, and I will say, like you know, as you mentioned, I'd been dealing with a lot of mystery, so I wanted to give the players some answers. And also, next adventure, chapter six, is where like everything goes up a notch. Where we're getting out of Act One now, all the stakes are going to be raised. It's funny because I know that something is going to happen to the lantern. Like every time there's the potential for it, I kind of go, oh. like when you said that the triad boat was attacking the lantern, I'm like, oh shit, oh shit. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I think like both of ours have an interesting kind of forward momentum. Yours coming from like the exposition paying off on the mysteries from previously, and mine kind of comes from. A situation where previously the players had been like generally you know following briefings etc and now they were just like they had f chased the enemy into the field and now they were chasing the enemies into like you know out of the fire into the out of the frying pan into the fire or whatever out of the hot thing and into the other hotter thing, you know? Into the hotter thing that you didn't realize was there. So, uh, yeah, that kind of urgency is good for... Uh, it's like, oh, shit, where are they going? They're going for the human capital. Oh, shit, we gotta go. Ah! It, it's it's funny because, uh, you know, you, you just said that since you know something's going to happen to the lantern, every time the potential for something to the lantern... Ha the potential for something to happen to the lantern is there you're like oh is this gonna be it is this gonna be it so but the players had the complete inverse experience where they thought this ship is invincible <laughs> i mean they didn't literally think it was invincible but it's the kind of thing where they never really thought i was gonna take it away from them or have it get that's, destroyed that's the thing the hubris the player's hubris but with you, I'm kind of doing that thing from the movie Hot Tub Time Machine. You ever seen that movie? <laughs> yeah, I've seen Hot Tub Time Machine. Where, where Crispin Glover's character in the present is missing an arm. And then he keeps and then they doing go back weird to the past, things. And he's that... always going into situations where it might look like he's going to lose his arm. Yeah. Chainsaw juggling, etc. Um... I think that was probably the best gag in that entire movie. Yeah, I like... Man, I remember watching it, but I don't remember much. Except for that awesome gag, and that's it. Um, I mean, it was, I remember it was one of those time travel movies where certain things you do screw up the timeline so that people start to fade away. And that's like, man, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. Oh, you don't like that? You don't do the Back to the Future thing? I don't know, man. I think it's just like the fading away thing. It's like, what does this fucking mean? What does this represent? Shouldn't they just be gone? Like, I mean, yeah, that's always that's always sort of been a, a beef with the Back to the Future movies. It's like, ha shouldn't shouldn't it already have taken effect in the past so that you don't witness it? Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest as I remember seeing all the, 
Back to the Future movies as a kid. I, it's like I kind of saw them in a bad context because I it was like one of those situations where I was like being babysat at someone's house that like I was only sort of familiar with. So it was like felt kind of weird. And then watching these movies and I just like I didn't find them like accessible at all. I was like, why is this kid hanging out with this old guy? What's going on? With was this thing about his mom? I I I, th- I was. But enough about Rick and Morty. I mean, I think I was too young for it. Um. Yeah, it's something about like the weird. Like, I I want to say like mundanity, of like, a lot of what happens in it. It's like something bad happened and we're gonna fix it but you know like i guess they do get shot at in that parking lot so that's cool but like <laughs> this is this is me is i only think things are cool if stuff gets shoot with guns so um that's all movies and video games Stuff gotta get shoot with guns. <laughs> yeah, we're slowly becoming a completely different kind of podcast. Shoot with gun, gun. Shoot, shoot with gun. Like that dread movie. Oh, I love dread. Dread is also a great movie. Man, that's a good, concise, tight, good thing. I feel like I dread think, honestly, would make I, a really. Gr- I think a dread would make a great adventure if you had a good map. Yeah, I think also. Yeah, I think I was just too young for Back to the Future when I saw it and I, like, didn't get it. I, like, didn't care about the shit that Marty McFly cares about because I was just some kid. I wanted to see Batman. <laughs> I want to see uh, Laser Fight. All that kind of stuff. So by now, we've we're certainly in the tavern, are we not? Yeah, it's been a slow walk to the tavern, but I guess we're here. I mean, we've been talking about Back to the Future and whatever long enough. Although this has been a pretty ta- tangent-heavy episode. Yeah, both of our actual adventures were sort of swift. <laughs> and so we're filling the rest of the time just talking about Back to the Future. But it's funny because we don't... Which is a good movie. You should rewatch those movies if you haven't since that time. I've, like, seen bits of them and stuff. I don't know. That's Maybe I'm just... I don't know. Me and my relationship with Back to the Future. Eh. I just... I uh, I don't feel the need to, like, revisit it, really. Uh, Suit yourself. I guess. Uh, okay, what did you bring to the tavern? This time, right, I, w- I, I was going to say... We're padding out this episode a lot with, like, tangents, but it's not like we plan these episodes a lot ahead of time. It's not like we knew what our sessions were going to be. Um, It's just happening that way. Yeah, we don't plan anything out ahead of time. I mean, I... Look, I'll... I'll, Here, I'll, I'll show behind the DM screen. My note... I usually have a single line note for each episode that I type out before we start and I send in discord it goes my session blank I have the operation name I have one or two things that are like major elements from the session and then I say what I'm going to do for my tavern thing 
McGill. Oh, that's what that all is. I just assumed that whole thing was like the name of each session. M McGill like has only just started to put up like chapter four blank um i don't know if you even like i think before that occasionally you would have like a note line but um yeah so so there's no way i can know that like you are having like a a relatively swift exposition heavy session or anything on the outset of the episode it's just like it happens. It's funny we've well, worked I mean, out that Well, I mean, the way. players don't know going into an adventure, right? Why should you? But we are not players! Are we not men? We are DMs. Oh, man, that's a good one. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I brought uh, a whole archive of stuff to the tavern this week. In particular, I would like to showcase... The Wizards of the Coast Dungeons and Dragons Map a Week Archive. This is from way back in the day, uh, right around the time that I was working on the Minds of Meddling Wheels. I think part one uh, is when I use this the most, but I use it every now and again in D&D games. Um, from 2000 until 2007, Wizards of the Coast would publish a map a week on their website, and there are all sorts of other D&D archives, uh, weekly adventure hooks, things like that, uh, gear, tactics and tips. They're all really handy, and it's a shame that they no longer provide the service, because this is probably the number one thing that I used the Wizards of the Coast website for back when they were doing this. Um, Sadly, they like they took them offline kind of at some point. So the only way to find this is to just Google Map a Week Wizards of the Coast, something like that. It'll be the top result. You can find it at archive.wizards.com slash default dot ASP. But I just recommend Googling it. You can find it very easily. One thing I so, want to say on this note is like without getting into the legal area of like you know illegal pdfs and whatnot um the like the process of getting old out of print documents sometimes like if specifically for role-playing games like because i was dealing with this just yesterday is like you have to man like man you have to like decrypt some of the weirdest like pdf archive whatever that's like named all weird and it's like how do you even find these things like you can't sometimes you can't just google it sometimes you have to like do real detective work to be like where where's this yeah you, you have to like search for the name of the pdf dot pdf and then you find it on somebody's server that's literally just like a directory list of pdfs yeah and no website exactly and like you and like there's a reason why that is not out in the open is because probably some of it is like not legal but at the same time it's like you know when so the example for yesterday that i have is that i was looking for um character in art for a role-playing game and i was like oh i want to get some of those great um there were these great like little character profile arts 
that were featured in the in the old Vampire the Requiem Core rulebook. And I was like, oh, I, I used to really like those. I'll find those. And, like, I Google image search, like, Vampire the Requiem and then each clan. And, like, some of them are just straight up not there. And I had to, like, you know, go take like like i have to actually go get my actual physical book out again and be like oh i guess i gotta put <laughs> this on the internet now because it doesn't exist <laughs> you know what that makes me think of i do this all the time even when i own a movie i'll still check netflix first before going and getting yeah. my hard copy yeah well i mean it's like it's a lot of extra work is like editing images and stuff to make up to scratch for your rpg session um it's a lot better to just be able to get it off google image search but uh anyways all that to say it's tough so all that to say yay map a week yeah um so there is so much here that you can use uh quite often these maps are like they accompany free adventures that were being put out by Wizards of the Coast at the time. But you can see immediately how any of these can be adapted to whatever you need. Uh, the series I would recommend just right off the top is called Cityscape and More. And uh, this is a series of, it looks like, six maps that are all different, like, sizes of city and town. There's a map for underground cave systems, sewer systems... Um, here's a, a city called Blackwall. Blackwall was built as uh, built with defensive concerns in mind. The city streets are a literal maze of twists and turns, a man-made cobweb of avenues and alleyways. For an army of intruders, the bewildering streets are as effective a defense as any curtain wall. And there's a great 72 DPI map, which is not that high re resolution by today's standards. At the time, it was high resolution. But just like a map of Blackwall, numbered locations really handy if you are in a bind and your players are like well i want to i want to pull off the main road into whatever the small town is that i find immediately on the first exit you can just grab one of these maps here's one for four winds a town called four winds that stands at the crossroads of two major highways they enable trade and travel between four great nations the city exists for commerce it has grown to its current size as the literal center of its economic region so there we go um, so Cityscape and More is a good series, but in here there's also like uh, Expedition to Undermountain, um, Dragon Magic and Fates of Eberron for some Eberron maps, uh, all sorts of things like this, Lords of Darkness and Sea maps. I also just wanted to say that on that point of like not the highest resolution, man, when you're dealing with this friggin' image scarcity situation you gotta settle for whatever resolution you can get man it's very true you really gotta just be okay with not hg maps um storm rack is also uh, a handy little series these are uh storm storm rack and also uh what i mentioned before uh lords of darkness and sea maps are both uh sort of mini adventure series that are based at sea and uh yeah so the map a week archive highly recommend it really handy little tool especially if you need a map on the fly 
And from that page, you can also access through a button on the left, the D&D 3.5 archive. And this is where you can find stuff like uh, the Steal This Hook series, Rules of the Game, which is uh, just examining the gloriously tangled rules of D&D and sort of breaking them down. Steal This Hook, I also used quite a bit, like Evil Hooks for Evil Characters. That darn familiar. Uh, it has been known to happen at times. Uh, a wealthy maven dies, and instead of leaving her estate to friends, family, or, or public trusts, she chooses to will everything to her beloved pet. And so the motivation for an evil character there is, you know, steal the, the riches, kill the familiar. Um, so yeah, as a, as a DM resource, this is a really handy one. It's all a little bit outdated, of course, because it was for 3.5. But when it comes to story, and certainly when it comes to maps, very easy to adapt to a 5e game. Or if you're still playing 3.5, well, here's a, a huge resource for you. So I also, I also have a, a 3.5 authoring, or, you know, third edition 3.5. I don't know. Um, so I pulled out this uh, Dragon Magazine. It's one of the, the fresher, nicer-looking ones. It's uh, number 295, May 2002. I don't know if I could tell you a damn thing about that. I probably wasn't having a great time. I didn't enjoy the middle school I was going to sucked. Um, anyways, what I will tell you is that, you know, I got, I've mentioned a lot of times, I've got all my old publications of these sorts in a bin under my bed. And uh, this one, this one issue was kind of like poking out from like, it was just like sticking out under the bed and I could like see it. And up in the corner on the cover, it says, 30 siege weapons and that kept jumping out at me like ooh tom you should talk about these 30 siege weapons in a tavern thing and i was like what 30 siege weapons i can't even think of 30 siege weapons how many siege weapons can you think of right off the top of your head like uh how many siege weapons well let, let, let's let's think of some okay catapult ballista or, uh, oh uh, uh trebuchet trebuchet that's a good um, one is an arbalest a siege weapon? I can never remember the size of an arbalest. I think arbalest. Uh, gonna come back to you on that one. Uh, That's <laughs> the I'm, huge I'm crossbow. I know that. Much. Uh, I, I'm not, but um, you know, siege towers. Uh, There's that awesome one called the porcupine. You know that one? Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The what, where it fires like fifty arrows at once. Yeah. Um, like I guess like cannons, like artillery weapons. Um, but like a lot of this kind of falls under the same category. Ballista, and stuff. that's what I was thinking of. Right, right, yeah. Ballista, yeah, and Arbalest is the big handheld crossbow. Ballista is the one on wheels. Yeah, and and also like I don't know if you're thinking maybe on the defending side, you could also have like you know boiling oil pot that sort of thing. Um, but like still, I can't. I don't think I could think of thirty unique. Um, you know, uh, siege weapons. And also, like, a lot of these seem to fall into categories. Like, cannon kind of covers a lot of them. Um, so, anyways, so I finally, I'm looking through this magazine, and first of all, this article is, like, at the very back of the thing. It's, like, 
page 82, 83. Um, it's called, And the Walls Came Tumbling Down. And I realized very quickly, they didn't come up with 30 unique siege weapons. Half of this is just unique ammo for one siege weapon. Oh, that doesn't count. A, so, a flaming arrow doesn't make a bow and arrow a different weapon. Well, and, and so I'm going to I'm just going to go through these and I'm going to give some some comments. So first of all, we have catapult and trebuchet ammunition, kind of also pointing out something I was saying there. Catapults and trebuchets. Eh, it's kind of the same thing, like in terms of like, I, I get that the principle is different, but like the effect while like there's a range of destruction is like pretty similar like the the you know rock hit thing um so they have different types of ammunition or so they claim uh burning metal stone and freezing metal stone eh okay burning metal stone and freezing metal stone i think like even Warcraft 2 had catapults that shoot big flaming rocks. So, like, burning metal... Like, okay, so here's how it tries to differentiate itself. is it's These are metal ammo, and then they're magic. A lot of these are basically magic, where I'm like, these don't need to be magic. Is it, but this one, the burning metal stone is a metal stone that then uh, releases the heat metal spell. And then freezing metal stone is the same thing, but chill metal. Which also, is chill metal in 5th edition, or do we just have heat metal? I gotta look it up. Hang on. Um, while you're doing that, I mean, again, I just, like, just either shoot a big block of ice at them, or shoot a fireball, like, throw, like, a flaming catapult ball like they have, you know? Um, I can only find evidence of heat metal in 5th edition. Chill metal looks like 3.5. Which is so funny because all it is, like, it wouldn't be that hard, would it? Maybe you'd, like, have a special effect where, like, if it's affecting armor, it, it slows you down a bit. Like, uh, chill, uh, Ray of Frost? I was gonna say chill touch, but it's, that's not it. Chill touch that is isn't the skeletal it, but hey, hand. you know what? Uh, while while we're just mentioning Chill Touch and also Heat Metal, um, there's a really fun YouTube series called The Animated Spellbook. Are you familiar? I might be. They're super fun, like, one to three minute videos that are all animated, and they just, each of them talks about a specific D&D &D spell, and uh, the one on Chill Touch is pretty fun. Uh, it's called Chill Touch, the most poorly named spell in D&D 5th &D edition. <laughs> I like that non-committal answer I made uh, where I said I might be and then that allowed you to explain it so that in case I didn't know what it was or any listener, you know, we're covered. Well, guess what, Tom? I would have explained it anyway. Nice. So <laughs> uh, next up we got um, Defoliant Stone. This is basically a stone that casts diminished plants on a 100-foot radius. Um again stupid uh use fire if you want to burn vegetation like what do you or you know if you have access to it some defoliant gas or something like you know it doesn't need to be magic it doesn't always have to be magic 
Earthquake Stone. Guess what this one does? Uh, it makes it rain. It hits and it casts Earthquake. It's it's just a magic howitzer, you know, like like cluster bomb or something, you know, like just you know, come up with a cooler way to do artillery in a fantasy way. Um, you know, it's not that hard. Maybe, well, well, we'll get to one. Oh, oh, yeah, here, this next one. I got a good idea for this one. The Quenching Stone. So this is, uh, I mean, it's a, it hits, and then it's a 30-foot radius burst uh, of the Quench Spell as though cast by a 7th level druid. Hey, giant water balloon, you dangus. <laughs> the the quench stone it almost sounds like uh like those old victorian era early fire extinguishers do you know those <laughs> yeah. where they were like a glass ball that you throw at the fire and it explodes um softening stone it it softens earth i mean typically you do want to wear down fortifications that you hit with shovel artillery, stone so like why I guess it's if you have the magic to add to it, good. But don't sell this to me like it's a whole brand new siege weapon. These are just normal siege weapons. Exactly. With spells like that's that's sort of the problem the that I'm hearing ammo. here, where it's like, yeah, these are useful, but they are not independent siege weapons. So having covered that, it's like um, a gun with a silencer is not a new gun. Um. So, uh, well, it depends if you can remove the gun or not, but. <laughs> the, er, not the gun the silencer that's what i meant to say anyways uh th i think having covered that we can like skim a little bit more the next one is a wall stone uh so go figure it deploys different walls when it hits uh it can cast firewall or force wall or ice wall or iron wall um or rock wall uh or wind wall all the wall spells you know um except a note I want to bring up about this one is uh, when fired from a catapult or trebuchet, the stone damages what it hits as normal and then creates a magic wall. This wall always arises perpendicular to the trajectory at which the stone was fired. That is a third edition pain in the ass is what that is. <laughs> fucking arguing with your player about what the angle of the rock would have been to cast the fucking wall of fire so that he perfectly that one would be like especially annoying through. just because it would inevitably be used in a situation where you don't have a battle map yeah so it's 100%. just like well in my mind i imagined it this way <sighs> so uh i think we can uh, move through the um ballista ammunition pretty quickly uh chain launching ballista bolt oh uh is that a tow cable one Wait, okay, so now now I'm interested. I thought it said chain lightning, but I, I was wrong, so now i got to read it. The specialized ballista bolt is used to create a climbing chain. Oh, yeah, that's cool. So that that's cool, uh, like a sure, grappling yeah. hook. I, okay, I'll, I'll allow it. Um, if, you, if you have, a, if you have a, an army that is full of tightrope walkers. <laughs> uh, disjunction ballista bolts. Um, 
just seems like a bolt of dispel. Actually, that's a, you know what? That gives me a great idea for a character. If I ever play this character, maybe or maybe I could use it as an NPC, how about a character where you fucking stack their balance skill from 3.5? <laughs> so they're amazing at balancing, and then their weapon is like a crossbow that fires chain bolts. Ooh, so or... They'll- um, They'll fire it like a chain up to the top of the castle wall and then like tiptoe up it with their amazing balance. One of the big characters in the Madness Combat series, which I love, uh, Sanford, his signature weapon is like a, a hook on a line and he throws it and he can do like get over here or he can like pull himself places and stuff. So, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that'd be a cool character. Um so yeah disjunction ballista bolt just seems like a very high level dispel ballista bolt um i mean morden kanan's disjunction so it's a name dropper at least uh needle spike ballista bolt um takes out large amounts of infantry so you know a cluster needle you know anti-infantry round that's fair that makes sense um, I said I wanted to get components for Mordenkaiden's faithful watchdog. Yeah, you said it, but you didn't say you cast the spell, so now there's ogres. Reverse gravity ballista bolt. Um, this is a fun idea, but again, it's just a spell on an ammo. So, you know, cool idea, but yeah. Um, okay, magic war weapon. We got the Bellows of Blasting. This specialized siege engine remember, resembles a large bellows mounted in, on a wheeled cart. The bellows can be pumped with a successful strength check, DC 18, and it releases a blast hurricane force wind in a 200-foot long cone for three rounds. All flames in this ing- area are extinguished. Range attacks are impossible. Uh, listen checks are impossible. All that creatures hear is the roar of the wind. Medium or smaller sized creatures and objects are blown away 1d4 times 10 feet. Fortitude save to resist. Uh, sustaining subdual damage and landing prone. Flying creatures are smaller of medium or smaller are blown away. Blah blah. Uh, large creatures are knocked prone. Huge creatures are unable to move forward. That's a cool idea. Is like a, a big old organ grinder organ that just like and then like it's the winds of doom man that's cool i like that one uh next up we got a fist of grumsh shout out to our orc gods and our orc buddies first used by orcs of the bloody hand this plus four ram has battered down the gates of countless fortresses the fist of grumsh is named for a huge cruel looking iron fist that caps its thick metal shaft any orc wielding the ram is under the effect of the protection from arrows and resist element fire spells. So that's a cool, like, you know, a special enchanted ram. That's neat. Uh, although we're going to see a bit of a, a bit of a trend. Because next up we got the ram of passage. This is a ram that has a big ornamental iron key on the front. And it casts pass wall three times per day. Then we have the ram of rusting. This is a ram, uh, and uh, it basically works like a rust monster. It, like, rusts through... Oh, yeah, the spell is Rusting Grasp. Um, Next up, we got a Siege Golem. It's a cool idea. You have a big golem, and then you mount a ballista on its back, 
it walks hunched over and uh you know it's covered in uh it's covered in armor and stuff it's uh so that i think is really cool that's the kind of thing that i would love to pull out like if you're running sort of a siege based adventure uh you know a helm's deep kind of situation it would be really cool to have like the the battle come to a lull and then you hear the heavy footsteps and like over the ridge comes a siege golem that'd be pretty awesome you know it's so funny because um if you ever do you know the game mage knight no is that a video game no it's it was an old tabletop game uh do you know hero clicks Oh, I do. I've never played it, but I do know Hero Clicks. Mage Knight was the original. Uh, I think it was the first game that the people, WizKids, uh, who made Hero Clicks made with that model. And it was like a generic fantasy game, um, <clears throat> like high fantasy game, but with those clicker bases. Um, but I had. I actually. I literally have in my room here because back when I used to play in person, I would use. Uh, my brother's old collection of mage knights as uh miniatures for when we play on a grid and one of the units they have is like a huge like it's like a centaur who is like his he's like pulling tight the strings of a giant ballista that's on his back like his arms are the arms of the ballista and so like i literally have a model that would work as the siege ballista basically um but cool. uh siege golem that it's so far that's my favorite of these right uh well i i like the bellows a lot too um anyways uh okay now this one i actually think is really clever at first i was like yeah i get it but i didn't this is the dust of returning the returning weapon ability is useful for thrown weapons, but a clever few have taken this principle and perverted it for the use in sabotage. So what I thought they were going to use Dust of Returning for is like, you know, your archers fire arrows, but then uh, the arrows just come back after they hit, you know, that sort of thing. This is a bit more clever than that. If this grayish dust is applied to any form of ammunition, it returns to the source that fired it. Saboteurs commonly sneak into encampments and pour this power onto ballista bolts, catapult ammunition, and into quivers of arrows. A single handful of this dust can be applied to one thrown weapon or piece of siege weapon ammunition or bundle of up to 50 arrows, crossbow bolts, or slingstones. When the ammunition is fired, it covers only half the distance to its target before returning back to its source. The ammunition strikes at the target that fired it, with a result with a ranged attack result identical to the result from when it was fired so basically this is a trick where you sneak into the enemy army you put this dust on their ammo and then they shoot themselves <laughs> so I, I thought that was neat it reminds me it's the kind of like wacky tactic um you used to see this a lot in like second edition warhammer 40,000 where like the rules were way all over the place and so there was a tactic you would see in old games of warhammer where people would get these assault bikers and then they would equip them with smoke grenades and smoke grenades like in the game 
basically you'd lay down some cotton balls and then the, that would be like smoke cover. And what people would do is they take these super fast, like strike bikers, race them up in front of the enemy firing line, do sort of like a pass at them where they drop smoke grenades and suddenly the enemy fire line would just be like completely smoke screened and then the motorcycles would just take off. Um, I I really love it when you can throw some surprising enemy tactics at the player. And that sounds like a really good one to leave the players kind of scratching their heads. So this is a bit of a weird one because it kind of gets ahead of itself. Is um, In the non-magic siege weapons section at the end, we have mantlets. Which, like, I guess, but, like, mantlets are barely... I, I mean, again... The thing on the cover said 30 siege weapons. Mantlet's not a weapon, so falling short of your 30. Also, among the magic items, we have the mantlet of warding. You know, go figure. It's a it's a magic mantlet. It defends you extra good with the magic. Um, so then we have the non-magic siege weapons, and again, we get back to my point of, like, how many... How many siege weapons there actually are. We've got um, Dwarven Stonebow. It's essentially a large ballista crafted to fire heavy catapult stones instead of bolts. So it's a ballista that shoots catapult ammo. Okay. Uh, Halfling Catapult. It's a smaller version of a catapult. Wait, wait. <laughs> it's just a small catapult, right? Uh, yep. Um, it's not a catapult that fires halflings. Also, <laughs> no, because you said halfling catapult. <laughs> no, it's crewed by halflings, not uh, not armed with halflings. Um, we've got here poison stone. It's like, hey guys, you already had your section where you put stuff on stones, but these are just stones that then apply a poison effect in an in a 10 foot radius burst so they're gas bombs again cooler if you just throw gas bombs at them like uh like those glass orbs that you were talking about earlier like the globe deers from uh, vermintide or warhammer the that the rat people have they throw globes of uh glass glass globes of gas um, repeating ballista. Larger version of the repeating crossbow. Suspended cauldron. I talked, I did bring this one up, so in fairness, they did hit this one. And they list, uh, boiling oil, boiling tar, boiling water, lye, hot sand. Oh, man, brutal. Yeah. What, like, this is, like, the worst way to die. But, um, yeah, that, and that's the end of the article. That's all the entries. So I don't even know if we had 30 entries in there. Maybe if you broke down all the, like, subcategories yeah. and stuff. But, like, for a magazine that was poking out at me this whole time, like, hey, 30 siege weapons, that'll that'll be a lot of topic. It was a lot of topic, but not for the reason it claimed. So that's what I have to say about that. If you want to get, do you in, often do you oh, often run siege adventures? 
I've I've run some battle adventures here and there. I think we've like we've done some fair talk about it um, in the podcast already. Uh, actually, next session is probably going to be pretty relevant to that because of the uh, defense of the the second human defense of the city of Austin. Um, so maybe we'll get into that a bit more. But like, I don't know, siege is like very. It's kind of specific, you know? I mean, I guess I've... Yeah, I have, basically. But usually, you know, siege stuff is... A siege is usually something that's happening. It's like the setting. It's happening in the background. It's not something you actively take part in with the exception oh, of, I've like, Oh, I've totally had my parts. players take part in sieges. Never is, like, the commanders. It, very much like Helm's Deep, where you've got, you know, your squad, and they're sort of mixed in with one side of the siege. Like, I I could see the... I could see myself putting the players in a thing where it's like a siege is going on, and they are the strike team to, like, make the push to try and break the siege. Um, but I would never have this, the act of, like, sitting there outside the gates and, like, holding people down with a ballista i don't know it it would need to be like something specific like oh there's a surge of enemies coming out now i think this mainly just comes back to like again we've some we talked about it before but like running battles that sort of thing right you don't want it to become boring yeah you gotta have you gotta pick your moments your scenes your set pieces is there anything else? I think that's everything. If you want to get in touch with me, get in touch with me on Twitter, Narnog, N-A-R underscore N-O-G. You want to get in touch with McGill, you get in touch with our Facebook page. I'll be there too. Uh, comparing Campaign on Facebook. We've also got comparingcampaign.wordpress.com, as I mentioned. That's where we post pictures and stuff for the episodes. We're kind of, we're doing our best to keep up with it, but, uh, you know, life is, we, we mentioned at the top of this show, it's troubled times, man. So, yeah, I think uh, things are a bit weird, but uh, hopefully I'll, I'll catch up with it soon. And hey, man, they're just supplemental materials. You can, you can hear all the references on the show proper. And I'll tell you what, to me, the most important thing is that that map is up there, because that's the one I keep going back to. Like, just remember, the first entry has the map of Drail. And anytime I'm talking about Drail, you can look at that and know what's going on. And uh, I guess that's it. Now Level up your characters, everybody. Not me. I'm a DM. No, you especially. Damn it. <laughs>